Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. I'm Heather. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. And we also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. If you are jumping in with us today, we are on day 56. So getting, a, you know, like, I don't know how many that is, like a, a sixth through the year or so, something like that. No, a seventh, a seventh through the year. I shouldn't have even that's tried. That's two, yes, yeah, seventh. I think that's right. I, have, I was talking with someone the other day about how one thing that really annoys me with this year, because it's a leap year, we're going to finish reading the Bible on December 30th, not December 31st. So there is just going to be, there's going to be one day at the end of the year where none of, no one in the Grove Church reads their Bible. Because obviously you can't read your Bible unless you're in the reading plan. Someone there's gives no, you a plan, yes. Yeah, otherwise, you know, <laughs> we're not a bunch of animals. So. You'll have to give everybody what the plan is it's from true. Evan. We'll have to figure it, we'll have to figure it out. Uh, and as usual, if you have a question, feel free to email that into info at grove.church and use the subject in the subject line put down that it's a Let's Read the Bible podcast question. That way it'll get sent along to us because we love to answer questions. We'll be doing one of those today. All right. Well, Heather, this is your first time on the podcast. So really Very exciting stuff. Time. Wife, mother, biblical scholar extraordinaire. I don't know how you describe yourself, but maybe. Definitely that every time. Boom. At a party. It's me. Biblical extraordinaire. That's it's the way it's the way to impress people. So absolutely, no, yeah, really excited, really excited to have you on. Maybe just introduce yourself to the people for a little bit. What what do they need to know about you? What do they need to know? Um, nothing. I mean, I am the mother of four children. I feel like that is probably in this season of my life what is most shaping about me. Um, I don't like chocolate. Kind of a weird fact about me. I did not know that. Yeah, crazy. I since I was a baby turned it down. Huh. Chocolate cake, spit it out. White chocolate as well, or is that, is that no white through? chocolate? Okay. But as my sister says, it's not real chocolate. It's true. Yeah, yeah, it's sweet. Uh, chocolate hits a bitter note for me. All chocolate, even milk chocolate. So yeah, dark chocolate I get. I always describe that as it's, it's a bitter chocolate for bitter people. You know what's the what's a bitter the point people? Of, <laughs> I like it. What's the point of it? All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's going to be a super fun episode. I'm excited for it. And with that being said, let's kick off our readings in the Old Testament. We're going to dive right in with Leviticus. And as uh, we all know, Leviticus is a super dry read. And I asked everybody in my life group last week, what is a book of the Bible that kind of gives them the most trouble or that they least like? And uh, far and away, Leviticus was the one. I get it. Yeah, I get it too. But I want to lay out a little bit of a case of why we should give Leviticus a second look and might enjoy it a little bit more in the future. So I think that it's so important as we read Leviticus that we keep in mind what the entire point of the book is, and that is that God wants to be with his people. And this is a way, all these rules and rituals are a way for him to be able to be with his people. Because in the Garden of Eden, he was able to freely walk around with Adam and Eve and right. be with them. And so uh, when sin came in and that wasn't possible, uh, because of God's holiness, uh, think like the sun, right? The sun is amazing and we wouldn't want it to be any less the sun. That's like God's holiness. But if you get too close to it, you're going to burn up. And so I think that that gives us a little bit of a picture of why all of the rituals and the rules of Leviticus um, are a thing. Yeah, so, you don't want to be like Icarus getting too close to the sun. Then your wings yes. melt off and it's just a whole... I don't know this story, but I believe the, you. The Greek myth of Icarus? No, I'm not a Greek myth kind of a girl. I don't know. 
I don't know why. I feel like I was just taught a bunch of these things in school and it just always stuck with me. I don't know why I was taught a bunch of Greek myth in school. But... And I was probably taught it as well. I remember Odysseus and things, but yeah. I just sort of dismissed it because I'm like, I don't like well, there you go. all those creatures. I'm out. Like most of my jokes. Doesn't always land sometimes, but there you go. I like all your jokes, Evan. Well, thank but, um, okay, so the pull point of Leviticus is that God wants to be among his people. And I think that that uh, makes reading all these strange rules and rituals a little bit uh, more palatable to us. The second thing is that the language of Leviticus is um, points us to Jesus everywhere. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that this week, that if you think about it, Jesus within one person uh, was all the entire system of Leviticus. He is the temple. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. It's like it's all wrapped up into one. And so we see pictures of Jesus everywhere we look in Leviticus. Yes. Yeah, one of the really life-changing things for me this year is I bought, it was, it's, it's a nerdy thing, I guess, but I bought a new Bible because I was really excited to do it with wide margins so I could actually take notes. And my goal is to figure out, I mean, not that's, a, I guess it's a really audacious way to put it, but as much as I can, find all of the places in the Old Testament that point forward to Jesus and then highlight and scribble. And then that's the idea is like, this Bible is just going to be notes of that. Um, but it's been really fun because like you said, I mean, it's it's not it's not a bad thing to say. Once you get into that part of Exodus that's just the law, that through Deuteronomy is a really hard read. Because <laughs> you're, you're just reading about here's how you sacrifice, here's the one that you buy, here's how to do all these different things. You're, you get into all these really we're gonna talk about one of them today that's just like a really wacky chapter about like different tests to do. Um but seeing how it all points forward to Jesus is just a it's it's been really eye-opening for me this year, reading through kind of that that most dry portion of the Bible, it's al- it almost feels like a treasure hunt. Like you're going through and you're getting to find all these different things and figuring out how it points forward. So I've, I've been really enjoying that. I like that, a treasure hunt. And I think that that Bible that you are marking all those things in the mar- margin is going to be the Bible that all your grandkids are going to fight over, Evan. Ooh. So I, think about that. It's it's funny. I um I never thought about, I think Nick was the first person who brought that up and he was saying, because I, I was reading the Bible like digitally and not really like marking up my physical one a bunch. And then he mentioned that it's like it's special for him to think about how he'll be able to give some of these Bibles to his kids one day. And that was like that was that was a really eye-opening thing for me. It's like, oh yeah, that would be a really cool thing to be able to do. And now that I have, you know, uh, uh, my son Joel um and and other kids eventually, it, it's really cool to think about, yeah, like you said, what what can I pass down to them and all those different things. That has been the biggest treasure going through my dad's things is and we did it last last July with all of my siblings and my mom, but just to go through his books and see like his notes in the margin, like those are the treasures for sure, is to like get into his mind. Um, Okay, so that brings us to the third reason why I think we should give Leviticus a second. Oh, I did want to say this though. So when we read like in John 1, 29, it says that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about it. Without Leviticus, you don't even know why he is the lamb of God or why that even, you know, helps us out. What is even good about that? So um, So that's why I think that Leviticus is great. And then the last reason is all that system of sacrifice, the priesthood, the temple, the tabernacle, is discussed everywhere in Scripture. And so without Leviticus uh, connecting us to that imagery, uh, we will miss some of the full significance of those metaphors and analogies. In Hebrews, it's all throughout Romans. It is um, Peter calls us the royal priesthood. Uh, without Leviticus, you don't really understand what that all is about. So think about that as you read the last couple of chapters of Leviticus this week. Okay, so this ties us nicely into chapters 21 and 22 because they have to do with priestly living. And because of their closeness 
to the presence of God, priests were held to a high standard. And now that applies also to us. We may not be held, thank God, to all these <laughs> ridiculous instructions. Um, I guess I shouldn't call uh, the, them ridiculous. We're going to get, you're going to get letters about yeah. that now. At odd, at least. Yeah. To the, to okay. the, mod, to the modern eye. Strange. Uh, yes, to the modern eye. I like that better. Um, we're not called to all of those things, but we are called to be set apart and to represent, to reflect God to the world like the priesthood was. So um, even in this chapter, I'm not going to lie, there's all kinds of weird instructions and requirements that priests had to follow. And some of them, you'll notice, are singled out for just the high priest. Um, one of them that I found really funny was uh, in 2110, and it says, he must not dishevel his hair. Come on, high priest. Yes. So uh, I'm going to start quoting that one to my husband all the time. You must not dishevel your hair. There was one last week, me and me and Nathan were doing the podcast, and it was about how you couldn't shape your beard, and you just had to let it flow out. I'm like, oh, man, thank goodness run to the You'd new covenant. <laughs> Ashley would not enjoy me having to just like let it completely go out and not control it at all. Evan's gone all Old Testament on his beard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, there are also regulations about their food, you know, who's allowed to eat it. Uh, And when we talk about priestly food, remember, it's not just food. It was a sacrifice that the priests uh, are allowed to take a portion back as nourishment for their family. And there's all kinds of parts that are about a person being unclean that might disqualify them from eating. And as somebody who's a bit of a germaphobe, I can get behind God's uh, need for clean cleanliness uh, when it comes to food. So um, I, I joke, but uh, but I, I actually do see his point there. You have to wonder, though, in Leviticus also, just like you said, all the places you're trying to f- find where Jesus is, um, I went through and like circled holiness everywhere I found holiness. And I tried to look up on the internet because I tried to count, but I knew I was missing some, uh, the count for holiness in Leviticus. And it's unclear because I think it depends on the tense used and um, the version that you're in. But there's somewhere right around 100 uses of holy. And in these two chapters alone, there is, um, it's used 22 times out of that 100 or so. And there's 27 chapters in Leviticus. So it's Definitely a weighted couple of chapters on uh, holy, the holiness. And A.W. Tozer said that we cannot even imagine God's holiness, which is such a weird thing to think about. Like if you try to ponder and try to meditate on God's holiness, we still can't even grasp it. Um, And then the second half of of chapter 22 has to do with acceptable and unacceptable sacrifices. And I just want to remind you to keep that in mind when you get to Romans 12 next week. That's a great that's a great reminder. Well, speaking of holiness, chapter 23 kicks off a series of laws about the different holy days that are going to be on the Jewish calendar. So God is setting up days to we'll see what they're all about, but he's setting up days specifically to remember things that he's done and also to kind of keep his people in the right in the right headspace, I guess is the way you could describe it. Uh so the first one is the weekly Sabbath. And so this is obviously going to come up a bunch in the New Testament because Jesus is going to ruffle some feathers with how he treats the Sabbath versus how the Pharisees think he should be treating the Sabbath. But this is a holy day and it's on every, it's every Saturday. So it's actually, I believe it's technically from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night is, is when it's observed. Um, but it is to be a day of rest. There is not supposed to be any work being done and worship of Yahweh. Those are the two things that are supposed to be happening every week on the Sabbath day. The next one is the Passover. 
and the festival of unleavened bread, uh, which remember is when the when the Israelites left Egypt, they didn't have time to leaven their bread, or in other words, to make it fluffy and taste good. So it's basically just kind of like a gross cracker is what they were eating. Uh, and so every year for the festival of the unleavened bread, that's what they were eating for a week. And then that would culminate in the celebration of the Passover, where again, uh, the angel of death passes over the people of Israel as God brings them out of Egypt and it's for them to remember. Uh, and I, I, I would say it's it's funny how we can kind of, I think sometimes we leave some of these Old Testament things in the past and we don't really take a moment to reflect on like, that is an incredible mercy of God in that moment that happened. And we don't take the time to reflect on the fact that the Israelites really immediately botch it. It's like months later, they 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 decide to make an idol, um, an, an image of Yahweh that's in, in an inappropriate way. And instead of like worshiping him the way he deserves to be worshiped, there's like, oh yeah, this cow, this is the thing that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. It, it's, it's not an accident that God is very strict with the Passover and that the people of Israel need to remember what God did on that day. And I think all of these, uh, these rich, what, what would you even call them? Festivals, Festivals, holy days, yes, yeah. that are scheduled, I think are so important because there is a connection between rest and remembrance and a, a chance to stop and ponder the goodness of God, a, stand, a chance to stop and rest. And God schedules it in mm-hmm. because he knows people. People will just uh, blow through life without stopping. And so I think it is the mercy of God, all of these festivals. Yeah, I think it's one of those. I, I, I reflect sometimes, I, not sometimes, every year I think about the fact that the Christmas season is like the busiest time of the year. And and it stinks because it it really is like we're reflect we're supposed to be reflecting on the birth of Christ and God making a way, like the light shining in the darkness. And, and really it's kind of go, 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 go until you get to Christmas Day. If you're not traveling and if you're able just to kind of be with family, that's the first day. Really, it feels like in almost all of December where you just kind of take a step back and so true. Relax and reflect. And maybe it starts with like the Christmas Eve services is kind of like the, the way that it goes there. But yeah, no, it's a great point. Like rest is <laughs> rest is very connected to being able to reflect on what on what God does. Uh, so the next one is the offering of the first fruits, which acts as a, it's kind of a nationwide, not quite a tithe, but it's a nationwide offering to the Lord. So you would go You'd begin harvesting your crops, and then a portion of those first fruits is to be laid down as a sacrifice to the Lord. So it's just expressing thankfulness for what's happening there. Uh, after that, there's the Festival of Weeks. Also, this is where, where Pentecost is, and so Pentecost comes up. We we know it today as being the uh, the Holy Spirit descending upon the upper room, but before that, it was a festival of the Lord as well. So it's it's been a holy day for a long time, not just since the New Testament, uh, but that celebrates the end of harvest. So the festival, the first fruits would be the beginning of harvest. And then the festival of weeks or Pentecost is the end of harvest. After that, there's the festival of trumpets. Uh, this one, like this one's really confusing to me. It just kind of celebrates the civil new year starting up. It's not really mentioned very much else in the old Testament. So it's, it's kind of just in there. So I don't, I don't know too much about it, but you know, it's the festival of Trump trumpets are fun. I like, it's I a like, good name. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and then finally, there is the, or I shouldn't say finally, the last two are really famous ones. They're going to come up a lot. There's the day of atonement. Uh, which today, if you have Jewish friends, it's Yom Kippur, and it's still the the holiest day in Judaism. So you'll that's what they that's what they would call it today. Uh, but this is the high priest making atonement for the sins of Israel. So last week we talked about it's a very intricate process and ceremony. This is where you have the scapegoat. Um, all those different things are happening. So once a year, it's it's a reminder of Israel that they look to the Lord for the forgiveness of their sins, uh, and that even in 
this old covenant, which we kind of think of the mercy of God as being a new covenant thing, which is a huge mistake. God is, God is showing his people mercy all throughout history. And, and the Day of Atonement is a reminder that God is forgiving the sins of his people, even when they don't deserve it, because obviously they're breaking covenant all the time. Uh, and then the last one is the Festival of Tabernacles, also called the Festival of Booths. Uh, and this celebrates God's providing for his people in the wilderness. You got to say that word really carefully. Booths. Booths. <laughs> that's, that's true. The Festival of Booths. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, you would see this, it, it kind of takes shape more once the people of Israel move in to Israel, because right now it's like, make, you know, make a tent for yourself and stay there. And the, the people of Israel would be like, we're already in tents. What are you talking about? But when they get into Israel, what they would do is you would leave your home for a week and you'd essentially camp out. Like you'd build a small shelter and it would remind the people of Israel that God provided for them while they were in the wilderness. And so a really cool festival there. Uh, so that's Leviticus 23. In chapter 24, we get a few different things. Uh, first, God establishes that Aaron is to light the lamps outside of the veil of testimony and is to keep the flame burning continuously. So very similar to the altar, where the the, the law of God was that once you've started the flame, it's never supposed to go out. And I believe, what, as, as I'm reading, I believe this is including while they're moving the things. So I think the altar is still going, at least in a small way while they're picking it up and moving it. Maybe I'm wrong and there's a, there's a part of the Bible I'm not thinking about, but at least that's that's how, how it appears to me is, is what the rule is supposed to be, that the fire is supposed to be in the lamps and the fire of the altar is supposed to be kind of an eternal flame that's going on. Um, and then after that, we hear about this guy who makes a big mistake. So this is in Leviticus 24, starting in verse 10. It says, now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed, and they brought him to Moses. And his mother's name was, I should have looked up how to pronounce that, but I think it's Shelomith. Sounds good to me. Sure. Uh, The daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. It's always Dan. Uh, And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let the congregation stone him. And the people of Israel, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Uh, and so again, it's talking about, it's talking about a big theme in Leviticus, because this might seem harsh to us today. Uh, but what is God trying to communicate to his people through a massive system of sacrifice through intense penalties for blaspheming him. He's trying to communicate that he is holy. And, and like Heather said, we, we can't comprehend the holiness of God, but he's trying to show this ancient people that he is infinitely holy and that it is, it's, it's infinitely wrong uh, to blaspheme who God is. Uh, and then this f- portion is followed up by some declarations that when someone is wrong, justice should be done in proportion. And so this is where we get the famous eye for an eye statement. It comes back up again. Or in other words, if someone really wrongs someone else, they need to make full restitution. They can't just, you know, oh, sorry about that and give them a little something and that's it. No, like when you sin against someone, the way to make it right is or the way that justice is to be done is by making uh, making things right in proportion. So if it's an eye, it's a, it's an eye. If it's a tooth, it's a tooth. Uh, more realistically, the way that it plays out in Israel is if you steal something of value or you defraud someone of something, you need to pay up what that thing was worth and put a little bit extra on top of it is, is kind of the idea. Gotcha. All right. So uh, day three, we're going to read Leviticus 25. And this talks more about the Sabbath and Jubilee. 
And uh, in verse 1 through 2, it says that even the land is going to take a Sabbath, which I think is so interesting because that's quite a visual picture that the land belongs to the Lord and that even it needs a season of rest. And Jubilee might be a new word for a lot of people, but it's like a mega Sabbath. Um, It happens every 50 years, and a lot of the same things that were to be on the Sabbath year, regulations are still applied, but also there's a few things added as too. And the reason that they had this year of Jubilee is that it was really for the poor, that the debts were erased, slaves were uh, to be freed, and the land would return to its original owner and tribe. Um, This also reminded them not just provision for the poor, but reminded them that ultimately the land was the Lord's. And in verse 23, he says it in no uncertain terms, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Can't get more clear than that as that reminder. And I love the New Testament connection to the year of Jubilee, which was also called the year of the Lord's favor. And it's found in Luke 4.19. Jesus claims to be the final jubilee, like the exclamation point at the end of jubilee, that he is the final one. Because through the work of the cross, just like in the year of jubilee, he has erased our debts and he has set all the enslaved to sin free from that. So I love to think about Jesus as the final jubilee. Well, I think another really cool connection point there too is when the people are set free in the year of jubilee it's not that they did anything to deserve it it's just god's mercy saying no we're this is this is the year of jubilee all these things are going to happen and so in a similar way when when jesus is the ultimate jubilee it's again not something that we earned it's just something that god declares that's going to happen we, we it's because of what christ did so yeah re- really cool connection point there so good And then we're also going to read Leviticus 26. And God was in a covenant relationship with Israel. And you see that played out in this chapter. It's a very much an if you will, I will um, kind of a chapter. And verse 3 says, if you follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands, I will give you rain at the right time and the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. If you will, I will. If you observe my commands, I will. And so you'll have plenty of food, security, protection. Um, Spoiler alert, uh, they don't. They do not follow his will, and so uh, they do not receive the blessing of God. If you are new to the Bible, that might be new news to you. If you're not new to the Bible, that is absolutely not new news to you. And I want to highlight also verse 11 through 12. It says, I will place my residence among you, and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. This. this verse, it, it hearkens uh, to Hosea very much, where he names his children, uh, not my people right. and my people, but also it's such a beautiful picture of what God was trying to provide for Israel, the whole point of Leviticus, as I said in the beginning. And it hearkens back to Eden when God walked with Adam and Eve and also makes me strain forward to the coming day described by John in Revelation. In 21.3, Revelation says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look. God's home is now among his people. I will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Yeah, one of the things I'm fond of saying is that I think the two most beautiful chapters of the Bible are John 21 and Revelation 21. Um, And it's Jesus's forgiveness of Peter. And then in Revelation 21, we get the picture of Christ coming back. And it's just, yeah, like you said, it's it's just such an incredible 
It's such an incredible picture, and you can kind of sum up all of the covenants of God in that one simple phrase that He will be our He will be our God, and we will be His people. Um, and I also love in in Leviticus, you even see this whole idea of I will place my residence among you, and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God. Um, we see that fulfilled literally in Christ when He walks among His people. Right. And, and you think about how long the Israelites waited for this um, to literally be true probably not even realizing that it was going to literally be true here on earth. Um, and so, yeah, it's just like, it, it's all the little things that point to Jesus in Leviticus are just are just really fun to be able to see. Yeah, you see it all throughout scripture that mm-hmm. God wants to be with his people, wants to be, you know, his presence to dwell with them. And so that is everywhere from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Yeah, the, it's it's one big story about getting back to Eden, I suppose, in some way. And in some ways, it'll be even better um, than it was there, but getting to that that perfect relationship with God once again. Uh, well, chapter 27 is the final chapter of Leviticus. So you made it through. If you were listening to this you and you it. read, you should be proud of yourself because you, I mean, I don't know, this puts you in like the top 1% of, of people, I think, as not as far as morality goes, but as far as Bible reading goes. It's a, it's a rare accomplishment that you made it through Leviticus, so way to go. Pat yourself on the back. Uh, and it's also a really interesting look into what the civil law of Israel was. Uh, so it's, an interest, it's, a, it's a list of valuations that were of things that were dedicated to the Lord and the cost of ransoming them back. Uh, and so the tithe was something that was across the board. You had to give a, a, a 10% portion to the priesthood, to to the Lord, to dedicate to the Lord. Uh, but people were allowed to go above and beyond if they wanted to. Uh, however, if you went above and beyond and then later changed your mind and you want to buy that thing back, uh, God's not so mean. He doesn't let you do that. So you are allowed to do that. But there's a 20% penalty or a fifth is the way that it's described. That's literally the word that's used. Uh, and so I'd imagine it helps to discourage like rash vows that we see. You know, we see in, um, in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira where they kind of, and that one, they're being more, overtly deceptive. Uh, but what the, they're just getting on the bandwagon. Everyone's giving stuff. They want to hop onto it as well. And they want to make themselves look even better than they are. And this one, maybe you're hopping on the bandwagon. And then eventually a couple days later, you realize I really couldn't, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have sold that thing. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, and so you are allowed to get it back. Oh, do you have this? Always no, nothing uh, profound, but it makes me think of Father of the Bride too, where he sells their family home. And oh, then yeah. like literally the day back, he goes back the next day and Eugene... That says levy. Le- levy yep. Yeah, it's like okay, but for a big profit, yeah, I'll sell it back to you. <laughs> oh man, don't be a Steve Martin. You know, just commit to it right off the bat, or don't commit. Now to you're going to be thinking about Steve Martin when you read uh, chapter twenty-seven. That's my secret. I'm always thinking of Steve Martin. The guy's <laughs> the guy's a national treasure. Uh, and then, in addition to this point, it's made clear that just like Heather was talking about in the last section, when it uh, when it comes to the year of jubilee, all the land is going to be returned to the family that it came from. So once again, uh, this is God's land that they're living on. They don't get to sell it permanently, but things are going to eventually be set back to the way they were, which it kind of just reminds me of, it's this idea of God is the one giving the lands to the specific tribes. And so the Israelites don't have a right to change the borders of the tribes. That's what God, that's what God is doing. And he's the one, and when you look into it, it's not just the tribes that are given the land, that each clan in each family is given specific land within within the land of Israel as well. So God is orchestrating things very clearly. The borders aren't supposed to change. The tribes aren't supposed to move. Looking at you, Dan, but we'll get to that in us months away now, but they, they move and they're the worst. Uh, and so that gets us to the end of the book of Leviticus, which ends with these words. This is verse 34. It says, these are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Uh, and I think it's an important reminder for two. 
it's it's number one, it's reminding us that these are the holy commands of the Lord. And even as we read it, it can feel really dry. Um, but imagine what it would have felt like to be the people of Israel that the creator of the world is making a, a new covenant with you and you're getting to hear all these things, even if it's kind of wacky to modern ears and maybe some of it was really strange to them back then as well. Uh, at the very least, what they were what they were receiving is this idea of this is the this is the ultimate God in, in, a, in a universe where they believed in like a pantheon of gods. This is the greatest God. The rest of them are false gods. He's making us his people and here's how he's setting us apart. So I think that's a really beautiful reminder. The, the second thing would be it's it's also a reminder that not a lot not a lot of not a lot of time has passed, uh, because we might think of this as being a ton of time between Exodus and Leviticus. They're still camped out at Sinai, so this is all happening within that same portion. This is not very long after the golden calf incident. Moses is meeting with the Lord; he's receiving the law, um, but this isn't necessarily years down the road. Um, eventually, we're going to get to a big year jump, but that's coming up in the book of Numbers, which Heather is actually about to introduce to us. That's right. And I love that point about it being uh, really soon after because you get the sense that these people just came out of Egypt and they are now sort of establishing what their their nation is going to be, the 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 rules and the laws for what is going to be in their nation. And it sort of makes me think about uh, the founding fathers of America, maybe, you know, that would have been an exciting time to be in on the ground floor. I don't know if that's how the Israelites felt or not, but perhaps. So uh, we're going to get to the book of Numbers, and all the math people might be really excited now because they're like, finally a book just for me. But if you are not a math person, you're wondering why you should read Numbers. And um, it's a it's a terrible name for the book because really uh, it's more than just a book of Numbers, even though it is named because of the census that God uh, told Moses and Aaron to take of the number of men who would be able to serve in the army. I want to encourage you, if you aren't watching the videos that open up each of the books from the uh, from the Bible reading plan, it comes from um, the Bible Project. And so I think those are great openers to to watch when you're about to start a new book of the Bible. But I found this interesting that the Hebrew name for numbers is actually, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. I listened to it many times on Google, but Bamidbar, which means wilderness. And that tells the story a bit better because it is the travel log of the Hebrew people in the wilderness as they're preparing to enter the promised land. It's funny. I feel like the first two books of the Bible are named this is going to be, I guess, maybe a flippant way to say it, but they're named really well, right? Genesis is like, it's the beginning. Like it makes sense that that's the name. Yeah. Exodus, what's it describing? The great exodus of the people of Israel. Um, and then you get to Leviticus and Numbers and like Leviticus, we talked about it when we opened up that book, but the name just means instructions to the Levites, which is really boring. But the Hebrew name is Weikra, which means and then the Lord spoke. That's a way cooler name. Absolutely. And then I feel we like, should have kept it. Yeah, I feel like this is the same thing. Like the Hebrew name is way cooler when it when it actually describes what's going on, not just like, oh yeah, there's there's some censuses that happen. Like that's that's selling the book short. It is selling the book short. The story here in Numbers is one that is going to get repeated many times in the Bible. And I this quote comes from the Bible Project as well in their Torah series on the book of Numbers. They said this, while God remains faithful to his people and his promises, he will honor their choices. He'll let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. He will be faithful to us, but he will also let us walk away. And an interesting note that I, I had never seen before is that Leviticus opened with this. 
the Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, depending on your translation. And Numbers opens up with this. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. Moses is now inside of the tabernacle, which kind of shows that the whole point of God being with his people in Leviticus, like it's it's worked. Now there is a way for people to be, or the, the priest to be with God in the tabernacle, right? So that's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's true, that that is, that is the point, but it is interesting that the verses are very, very close with that one word changed. I mean, I think it's really interesting. Thank you, no Evan. Problem. If I get Evan's approval, then I feel like I've won, guys. Okay, so Numbers 1 starts at the Israelite camp at Mount Sinai, and it's just one year out of being free from slavery and clear from Egypt, and they're preparing to go into the Promised Land. And the first bit of chapter 1 is just the count of men from each tribe. The family of Levi are not counted because they are in charge of the tabernacle, so they cannot serve in the army, those men. And again, it's just the men who are counted. But verse 54 says that they did take the census just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Task one complete, yay, but don't get used to that outcome. Numbers two, there isn't much in the opening to numbers um, that is riveting here, but I did find this interesting. The campsite that they established would have been 12 square miles just for the tents of the 600,000 fighting men. Somebody's done the math. I don't know who. I'm going to trust them. Not to mention uh, there would be multiple women and children, obviously. So the next time you go camping and you feel like it's a lot of work, just remember poor Moses in charge of setting up this campsite. Yeah, that's a big that's a big old campsite. It, this is where it, it is really helpful. Um, I always recommend for people, have a study Bible at home. I, th- I think everyone should have one. Uh, and then I think the parts where it's most helpful are in these portions and maybe the letters of Paul where it can get a little bit confusing. But in, in this portion of the Old Testament, it, one, of the, one of the things that makes it dry to read is everything is described in intricate detail. Um, one thing that's great, one thing that's great about that though, is that means we can picture pretty much exactly how all of this would have looked. So you can look up pictures of how was the camp going to be set up, and they all look pretty much the same because again, it's all described in intricate detail. So you can Helpful, imagine, but also boring. Yeah, you know, it, it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. Uh, so up next, we get a really interesting passage. Uh, you may remember that after the Exodus, Yahweh commands that the firstborn that were saved through the Passover shall be dedicated to him. So remember the Passover was the firstborn of everything was going to be killed, but God saves the Israelites because of the, the they put the lamb's blood over their doors. However, because all of those firstborn were going to be killed, they were supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. Um, and numbers three, and I never caught this before. We see that God is actually going to be claiming the Levites as that promise. And so now the Levites are the ones who are to be dedicated to the Lord instead of the firstborn across the board for Israel, Um, which is nice considering Levi was passed up by Jacob for the firstborn blessing in favor of Judah. So remember when Jacob is blessing his sons, uh, he passes over his first threeborn, which are Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, because, you know, that well, Reuben was... uh, he slept with Jacob's wife, which is a big no-no, and then Simeon and Levi because they went and massacred a bunch of people. So also, so I don't blame Jacob for his choices. I get it. You know, I, I get kind of punishing them in that moment. Uh, but here in this moment, we get Levi, at least in this in the form of his descendants, he gets a blessing of the firstborn. Finally, um, still sucks for Reuben and Simeon. They get nothing. So they they, they are eternally passed over in, in that moment, at least. Uh, and then we jump into a list of the clans of the tribe of Levi and what their responsibilities were. Uh, and so th- I, 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 I'm just a nerd. I find this stuff really interesting as far as like what the roles of the different Levites were going to be. 
Uh, so you have the Kohathites, which are descended from Koath, who is one of the sons of Levi. And they camp out on the south side of the tabernacle, and they were in charge of moving the most holy objects of the tabernacle. So think like the Ark of the Covenant, the altar, the lampstand, all of those different things. Uh, and speaking of things I didn't, I didn't catch before when I was reading, uh, they couldn't look at them. And so when they were tearing down the tabernacle, the priests would actually drape um, special made cloths over all of these objects. And then the Kohathites would come in and they'd grab the poles and then they'd move along with the camp. So really, and that's where I was kind of wondering about the fire going out, because in my head, it seems like the way it's interpreted is even while it's moving, it should be going. But then I'm wondering, how do you keep a fire going if everything's covered? So maybe I'm wrong on that. Who knows? Maybe it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't know. These are the things that come into my head. Uh, the next clan is the Gershonites. They are described, uh, sorry, descended from Gershon, the son of Levi. Uh, they camp out in the west side of the tabernacle, and they were responsible for moving all the curtains of the tabernacle. So not as not as fun, although less dangerous, because if they accidentally touch their stuff, they don't die. So the Kohathites are probably the ones who are, uh, have to be extra careful as they're moving. And then finally, there's the Merarites, which I still don't know how to pronounce that. It's really, it's really hard because it's a lot of vowels, uh, but they're descended from Merari, the son of Levi. They camp out in the north side of the tabernacle, and they are responsible for all of the bars and the pillars of the tent. So they get the, the real heavy stuff is what, they're, uh, is what they're in charge of moving. And you might have... Th- realize to yourself that, wait a second, there's people camped out in the north, the west, and the south side of the tabernacle. What about the east side? I don't remember when it gets set up, but there is like a special forces units of the Levites that Moses is like in charge of. But the idea is, um, like Heather was saying, the Levites don't go into the military, but if the camp was ever invaded and they went after the tabernacle, there is like a warrior group of Levites whose job it was to defend the tabernacle. I don't, I remember this from last year, so I don't remember what chapter we actually get that established. You don't remember their name? Nope. I wish I, I wish forces. I did. Special that's, that's, that's something I've never noticed when I've been reading, but I feel like uh, you should do a little series on that. That's kind of interesting. The, I, I don't think it ever comes up as far as like, I don't think they're ever put to use, but hey, I mean, if you're going to be a Levite, I feel like that's the Levite you want to be. Absolutely. You, you that's be. what I was thinking as you're reading through these. I wonder if there was any jealousy between the groups of Levites that were like, man, I wish I had that job instead. I feel like if I was a Levite, the lamest one would be the curtains, the curtain movers. Like that seems kind it of- doesn't a, sound very manly. No. Yeah. Like at least like, I think I'd want to be a, a Merarite where like you're moving the big pillars and you feel super strong. Um, but you don't have to worry about slipping and touching the ark and dying. So I think that's kind of the, it's the sweet spot right in, right in between, <laughs> but, but who knows? Uh, and then our final day of reading is uh, chapters five and six of Numbers. Chapter five gives Israel a reminder to keep anyone who is ceremonially unclean for reasons of leprosy, discharge, or contact with a corpse. They are to be kept outside of the camp. And this isn't permanent. It's not saying you're forever exiled. It's saying until you're clean again, you're, you're not supposed to be in the camp. Uh, There's another list of rules for restitutions or for how restitution is to be made when you have wronged someone. Uh, Suffice to say, they are commanded to make full restitution. And if there is no one to pay, you still need to pay and the money goes to the priest. Um, So say if you defrauded someone and then that someone dies later on, even if there's no one, they're saying even if there's no family member left with whom you could make it right, you still need to pay. There's still something that God wants as far as even if it's not necessarily making it right anymore, it's still showing you the penalty of your own sin. And in that case, the money goes to the the priesthood and they use it for different things there. So that's how God makes it out. 
Uh, this is the weird passage I was talking about earlier. So we, it, it's really wacky to read today. Um, it's a test of adultery. And so it's specifically if a husband suspects his wife of being unfaithful to him, uh, he can go to the priest and ask to initiate an, uh, an adultery test, I guess is what I would call it. I, I, there's not really any other way to put it. Um, basically, you, you'd have to imagine that a marriage would have to be really on the rocks for this to go down. Um, and it also, it also, I think, gives a really helpful picture of the mercy that Joseph had on Mary. Because um, remember, when Joseph thinks that Mary has been unfaithful to him and she and she's pregnant by another man, he would have had every right to go to the priest and set up this test and kind of publicly shame her and we'll, and we'll see what has to happen. Uh, but instead, what does he do? He he resolves to divorce her quietly. And then obviously later on, the Lord confirms like, hey, she's not lying. She hasn't been unfaithful. And so Joseph, uh, they, stay, they stay together. But I, I think it shows the honor and the mercy of Joseph that he did not want to go and 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 put her through this even in the midst of feeling that kind of betrayal he he still uh cared for her enough to not want to go in in this area uh but here's what would happen so the priest would prepare a grain offering and have the wife swear an oath that would bring curses upon her if she was lying. So basically, it would say, if I have been unfaithful, these things will happen to me. Uh, the grain offering, or sorry, these curses would be written down on a scroll, and then the scroll would be washed so that the ink came off of it, and it would go into water, uh, and the woman would drink the water. And the idea was that, or sorry, and then after that would happen, uh, the grain offering would be a wave offering, which I still think is just really a really funny picture where you just take the grain, you just kind of jazz hands with the I don't know exactly how they I like the, the picture of jazz hands just like yeah grain and then you put it back down the way I don't get the wave offering it's always really weird when it comes up but you know it is what it is uh and so after that the the grain off or so after the grain offering if the woman had committed adultery uh she would become barren uh literally the words that are used is her her um her stomach would expand and her thighs would shrivel, I think is, is the way that it's described. So kind of kind of graphic there. Um, but if she was not unfaithful, then she would be immune from the uh, from the effects of the of the the water of bitterness, I believe is what it's called. So there you go. Really wacky, kind of a hard thing to read about. It is wacky. And I think um it's it's like an elephant in the room that I think we absolutely need to talk about. If there's an elephant in the room, I'm going to talk about it. But do it. this section makes me feel a little bit like, oh my goodness, yikes, what is this? And I've learned that whenever I come to something really uncomfortable, that it is best to not just sort of uh, move on and go from it, but to actually research why this might be. And uh, so I did that this this week with this because I'm like, what is this jealousy offering here? This is so strange. Um, and it definitely bothers my 21st century senses because it's a one-sided option that feels like um, a Salem witch trial. You know, it's a trial by ordeal. And that um, is like strange to f- come upon in the Bible. But um, I think it's uh, it's interesting as I was looking that life in ancient days was harsh for women. We can't we can't uh, we can't gloss over that. That civilization was not very civilized and the Israelites were no different. They were coming out of Egypt and had lived for generations in this pagan land. So there's that, but also not only did the men have the power over their wives, but like happens every day even now, people do get jealous. This is a like a right. human thing that men um men get jealous people cheat uh justin timberlake just wrote uh or dropped a, a song about uh, getting jealous so oh i mean gosh. it's it's a common thing and this is a provision for that common thing that would have happened so it's not an unusual scenario but what was uncommon for the day was israel's commanded response to the situation the other cultural laws of the day if you look at hammurabi's codes 
uh, from like the first Babylon, I think maybe uh, the first yeah, Babylon. Babylon. Yes. Uh, for for them, in a similar situation where there was a suspected adultery, the man was within his rights to kill the woman, to uh, a, a divorce her without any cause. But also it said this, and I thought this was so funny in the Hammurabi code that, code, that the woman was to leap into the river for the sake of her husband. So that feels more like the time of the day. And without really doing any thought work in this passage, it can feel like this is no different. But in this case, for God's people, um, and this is a quote from a woman that I read, uh, Wendy Elsop, and I wanted to read it exactly because I thought the way she puts it is perfect. Uh, For God's people, if a husband accused a wife without evidence, God commanded the priest be called to mediate. Do you start to hear whispers of the good news of Jesus? The accuser, with all the cultural power, could not decide the consequences for himself. He had to submit to another who stood in protection of his wife and determined her guilt or innocence by process before God, not simply by suspicion or accusation. That paints a whole different picture for this passage for me, that the water that she was about to drink was from the, likely from the same source used for ritual cleansing throughout the book of Leviticus with a little bit of tabernacle dust in it, and you said the ink. Right. That part I didn't know. But the, the drink might have tasted gritty, but it wouldn't have been poisonous to her. So it would have taken a miracle to prove her guilt not um, prove her innocence. And I think that that's what the the difference is here, that she was naturally protected by the process rather than threatened by it. And that's a great point. I never thought about that before. But yeah, the miraculous thing would have been the water having an effect. Yeah. Not necessarily. So that's a really good point. The assumption is it it probably would not have had an effect. It would have taken a miracle for it to. No, that's a great point. I I think, yeah, one of the mistakes that we make when we read the Old Testament is we kind of just take our culture and just put it back there. Right. Um, and, and we don't realize that the, the story of the Old Testament is the story of God slowly, an emphasis on slowly taking these kind of uh, pagan nomads and making them into his people. Uh, and so I think we, we really do ourselves a disservice when we think when we don't try to take off our kind of 21st century Western glasses uh, and try and think about what life would have been like, what the surrounding cultures were like. So I think that was great. That was great context for this as well, because it, it something that comes across as feeling really, I can't think of the right word, but unfair maybe is is the way to to put it. Um, Absolutely when, unfair. Right. Yeah. When, when you see it through the eyes of the culture that was happening at the time, you see how this, even even this is is a mercy from God. And a lot of the law is like that. A lot of it where on first glance, you look at it and you're like, what the heck is I'm going on I'm so uncomfortable right. reading this. Uh, but then when you actually put it into the context of the time that it, that it was written, you realize like, wow, this is actually exceptionally merciful, especially for the time that's going on. Absolutely right. Uh, so the final chapter that we're going over in the Old Testament is going to discuss the Nazarite vow, not the Nazarene vow. Nazareth is where Jesus is from. Nazarite, I don't know what the word actually means. I should have looked that up. Uh, but it's a special vow that people can make. Anyone can enter into it, men and women. Uh, and it's to set them apart for the Lord. And you can make a Nazarite vow for life. And you can also make a Nazarite vow for a specific period of time. Uh, so some famous Nazarites, these would be Samson's probably the most famous one. Uh, you also have Samuel, who I always forget is a Nazarite because I, I don't know why, but I always picture him as being really clean cut, but he would have been rocking really long dreads probably. Uh, and then John the Baptist is probably a Nazarite as well. Uh, and then for a temporary Nazarite, it seems like Paul was 
for a little bit because there's just a throwaway line in Acts that at one point he shaves his head after he had fulfilled a vow. So that seems like that he was... It was a teenage phase. Right. Maybe that's what it is. But it seems like that he he took a Nazarite vow at that moment there. Uh, so when you took the vow, you were to... Here's the rules that are kind of extra on top of the law. Uh, you are to abstain from alcohol. The literal word is any form of strong drink, which also includes vinegar. Um, I've never been tasted to try vinegar, so I don't know why that was a... It's a, like a health thing people do. Is that a, Take uh, a shot of vinegar. I did it for a while because oh, it's a natural antibiotic. There, there you go. All right. Well, no antibiotics for the Nazarites, though. You don't get that. Uh, this one would hurt, though. You, get, you don't get anything made from grapes. So it's not just wine, anything made from grapes. Uh, not allowed to do. No cutting of your hair. Looking at you, Samson. But we'll get to that here in a couple in a couple weeks. Uh, probably like a month or two, actually. Uh, and then no approaching corpses. So that's the that's kind of of all the things that make you ritualistically unclean. It seems like that one's kind of the most major is interacting with a corpse. Um, again, not necessarily sinful because obviously it would be some people's jobs to dispose of bodies as they come up in the camp. But it's the one where you have the most intense laws as far as how you're going to make yourself clean again. And if you're a Nazarite. That's a big no-no. They even say as you go through, if even if it's a family member who dies, you are not allowed to go and, and, and touch the body. So that's a big deal. Um, if a Nazarite broke these laws, they have to fully shave. And when I say fully shave, I mean like everything on your body, not just your head, uh, offer sacrifices, and then the clock on your vow restarts. So if you were doing a temporary vow, you don't get to just pick up in the middle of it. Nope, you're, you're going right back to it where it starts. So uh, really intense rules for Nazarites, but it was a way uh, open. And I, I love that it's open to everyone too. Like this is all the... We only know of men characters who take the vows, at least off the top of my head, but uh, men and women could both take the Nazarite vows. So cool thing that God makes a way for there. Uh, And then the final thing we'll read today is Aaron's benediction. This is the blessing of Israel. Um, It's just beautiful. I think it's a great way to end our uh, section on the Old Testament this week. This is Numbers chapter six, verses 22 through 27. And it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus, you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. I feel like you should have sung that, Aaron. I mean, Aaron. I just called you Aaron. Who's Aaron? It's okay. It's because it's a blessing of Aaron. Uh, yes, the song is going through my head as you're it's true. Uh, yeah. as you're reading it. But I think this is so gorgeous. And I love the thought that not only can we ask the Lord to bless us and to give us favor, but this is something he told Aaron to pray over the people. Say this to the people. Bless the people this way. These are God's mm-hmm. thoughts that he wants to do for his people. And so um, I absolutely think this is, should be part of our regular prayers, even for ourselves and our family, that we should bless them with our words, with these words that came from the Lord. Yeah, no, I love it. Uh, do you have a favorite version of the song? I, I think of the Jesus Culture one is the one that comes into my mind, but I don't know if you had a, the, a specific Is it one. Carrie Job? Carrie Job. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she has a great one Lord as well. bless you. Mm-hmm. All right, well, there you go. Uh, that wraps it up for our Old Testament readings this week. Uh, but before we jump into the New Testament, we do want to take a moment to ask you to leave a five-star review on whatever podcast app you're listening on. Uh, particularly on Apple Spot, uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those are kind of the two where it really helps get us out there. Um, and if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, you're allowed to leave a written review. And if you do that, we will read it on the air and give you a shout out just like we're doing for... A random person. This is my second year in listening to this podcast. I thought the second time would be repetitive, but the team does a great job of presenting the Bible stories in a way that's new. It shows the importance of reading the word often. 
I'm also doing the you version. Great job. I have recommended you often from VA. Right, from Virginia. There you go. And just to clarify, a random person is the username. So we didn't just, you know, throw out whatever they were saying before. That was the username. There you go. But thank you for the review. Uh, that's really cool. to. Th- uh, we haven't gotten one like that before where it's someone talking about how listening two years in a row, because, you know, we're doing the whole Bible every year. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we're able to keep it fresh for you. Thanks for leaving the review. Uh, and if you're at home, we would love for you to do the same. And apparently the from VA is uh, the state. I thought it was maybe the initials. Oh, maybe. So that's why I didn't say Virginia. I assumed Virginia, but I could no, I could be totally wrong. Maybe You're probably right. Maybe it's Virgil Anderson leaving this review. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump into the New Testament. Romans 4. Now, Paul continues his line of thought that he began in, began in Romans 3.21. Paul writes in paragraphs, and so the, the chapters were added later, and so uh, his thought begins in verse 21 of chapter 3. This thought is that through faith alone we are made right, not by keeping the law. And he spells out some of his reasons for that and some of the arguments as well as anticipate some of the pushbacks to this justification or being made right as coming through faith alone. So some of the evidence that Paul gets into in chapter 4 is Abraham. And Paul says, uh, humanly speaking, he was the founder of our Jewish nation, and that he believed God, and God counted him as righteousness because of his faith. So through faith alone— Abraham, he says, he points to the Jews and says, uh, humanly speaking, he was your founder, so you can't argue with Abraham. The next example or or uh, argument that he makes is with David, and that's through verse 6 through 8. The example of David reiterates the point that God credits righteousness and forgives sin wholly apart from works. Paul actually quotes David from Psalm 32, 1 through 2, which would have been uh, written after David slept with Bathsheba, and David says this, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. And then he goes back into talking about Abraham in verses 9 through 16, because Abraham is the father of all believe whether they are circumcised or not. Paul is heading off at the pass this argument that you must be circumcised to be made right before God. Verse 11 spells that out in uncertain terms. Abraham was not circumcised when God declared him righteous. So, Circumcision cannot be the path to righteousness. The next argument in verses 17 through 22 is about Abraham's faith in God's giving, a life-giving power, specifically that he and Sarah were to have children, but they were, they were old. And so Abraham continued to believe that God would and could do what he had promised that he would do. Yeah, and I think this, this all feels kind of foreign a little bit because we don't in some ways we don't struggle with this today. Like most of us don't think that you have to keep the Jewish Old Testament law in order to be saved, although some people do. And so it is important there. Um, But I think one of the things it's getting at is just like you you use the phrase um, saved by faith alone. And I think that's something we do struggle with. I, I think all the time we're trying to figure out what are ways that we can try and save ourselves? What are ways that we can try and earn our own salvation? Uh, And so even in the midst of demonstrating all of these things, which would have been really important to his his Jewish audience at the time, or at least the, the Jewish believers who are struggling uh, with how do they balance out the Old Covenant and the New 
covenant. I think it's important for us to think about those things today as well. Yeah. And if not just earning salvation, we absolutely struggle with earning what we think is God's favor right. by doing the right or not doing the wrong things. No, that's a great point. And we'll, yeah, we'll get into some more of the, the favor here in a little bit. Um, so chapter five, after spending that previous chapter outlining how we are justified through faith, and I, sh- I should clarify, uh, when I say justified, what that means is the element of salvation that refers to our standing before God. And so the way that's usually described is salvation is kind of two parts. There's justification and sanctification. Uh, justification means that we are in right standing before God. It, it, this is a really crude way of putting it, I suppose, but it, it's like the you get into heaven, like you get to spend eternity with God. Obviously, there's more to it, but it's essentially saying that our sin has been wiped away. Uh, sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Christ. Um, that one's not instantaneous. That one is... Unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. If that one is your whole life, that's going to be what you're going through. Um, And even when you get to the end, you're going to wish that it was further along than it was. Um, But that's the other part of salvation that happens. So the justification is happening uh, through faith. And then Paul then moves to show what is the result of that salvation. Uh, So first and foremost, it's peace with God, um, which I think is something that we don't reflect on very often. The fact that we have peace with God because of what Jesus did. Uh, And then another result is that we view suffering in a different way. Um, Because we know that our suffering is not condemnation, or in other words, the suffering is not because we have withdrawn from God, our suffering is not because we're we're being punished by breaking for breaking covenant. Um, We can now, and this this is going to sound crazy, but we can now celebrate in our tribulations because we know that it strengthens our our faith. and that sounds really crazy for us today. It would have sounded even crazier to the Christians who are reading this, because keep in mind when we're talking about the persecution that the church is going through, um, Paul is writing to people who at, at the very worst are being rounded up and killed. At the very best, uh, they're being ostracized from their cities. They're being persecuted. They're they're losing all. They're losing everything. They're losing a ton of things. Um, as you read through the book of Acts, you're going to see a bunch of different churches that are really struggling with the, the, the oppression of the authorities that are around them. And so Paul is writing and saying, because we're under the new covenant, because we know that these things are not a punishment from God, uh, we can now rejoice in them because think about how strong your relationship with Christ is going to be. Think about how strong your faith is going to be after you've made it through those things. Um, so again, crazy to, crazy to read, but but absolutely true. Uh, Paul reminds us after that that God demonstrates His love for us in this: that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, or in other words, Christ didn't wait for us to make the first move. Christ is Christ didn't make for us wait for us to somehow earn our, our salvation. He died for us while we were in the midst of sin, and that leads into uh, leads into a longer passage. I'm just going to read it because I, I again, if my theme this year is just kind of seeing the connecting points between Jesus and the Old Testament, uh, you can't get past Paul showing how uh, Jesus is the greater Adam. So Adam, remember, first person created. Jesus, obviously, we know who Jesus is. Uh, so this is Romans chapter five, starting verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but not. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So right there is an important point, right? He's saying that Adam is foreshadowing Jesus. 
In verse 15, he says, but the free gift is not like the trespass for many died through one man's trespass or one man's sin. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that is one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not the result of one man's sin for the judgment following trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through all uh, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience will many be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, And so Paul's point there is Adam's sin brought sin into the world. And Jesus' righteousness has brought grace and truth and, and justification and salvation into the world. Uh, so where Adam failed and kind of condemned mankind to living in sin, Jesus succeeded and has now given humankind uh, a way out and a way of salvation. So I think it's a, a really beautiful way that Paul puts it there. And did you notice how many times he uses the phrase free gift? Mm-hmm. Just there in verse 15, 16, 17, he says it five times in a row, free gift, free gift, which is back to chapter four, talking about salvation comes through faith alone. It's a free gift. It is not something that you earn. And so that that crops up again in the next chapter there. Yeah, the book of Romans, we, we talked about it when we introduced it last week. It's it's so dense, but in a really good way. It's just so packed with truth. And it's 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 difficult to read because Paul's writing style is is, is difficult. And so you're, you're, you kind of have to reread a bunch of portions to really figure out what's the argument that he's making right here. Um, but once you do kind of understand that, it, it all connects and it's all just really beautiful. I've been in about a year of uh, actually going through the book of Romans myself because it is so dense. Mm-hmm. And so I'm now on my fourth time through with a different commentary, a different way of going through it. And I feel like I'm just now kind of starting to wrap my head really around what Paul is trying to say and trying to do and finally seeing how it all is woven together. It's it's a masterpiece. It's like a jigsaw puzzle that mm-hmm. Paul is putting together. It's gorgeous, but really, really packed. You're right about that. It is dense. All right. Chapter six opens up with this continuing conversation that Paul is having. And you get the feeling that Paul has had this same discussion many times over, maybe actually with people, but also in his own mind that he has been having this conversation. So this argument that he is laying out constantly, um, he knows the pushback and the question that's coming next. And so he poses it right away in verse one. And it's kind of something like, well, if God's grace is so good and best displayed in my weakness, then I'll just keep on giving him the chance to display that grace. And Paul's answer to that is that, obviously not right, because how could we possibly continue to sin if we've died to it? You talked about how the word holy is used like X amount of times in Leviticus. I feel like you could also count how many times Paul says, by no means in Romans, because he keeps anticipating people's uh, arguments against what he's just said. And I feel like his by no means is, heck no. (laughs) Like, that's what Paul's trying to say. That's ridiculous. Okay, halfway through the chapter in verse 15, there's another question that he poses this uh, hypothetical hypothetical debater. 
And it's something like, if I'm under grace and free from the penalty of sin, what does it matter if I sin just a little bit? And to this again, by no means, is right there again. But the overarching theme of this chapter is that we have been given new life in Christ. So we are no longer slaves to sin, but rather now slaves of righteous living. And Paul uses that word slave over and over again in the second half of this chapter. And it would have been a really effective argument for the Romans at this time because roughly one-third of the population in Rome were slaves. And more than one-half of the church in Rome were either slaves at the time or had been slaves themselves. So Paul says you're either a slave obedient to sin and death or you're a slave obedient to righteousness. And Paul's audience absolutely would have known what it was to be a slave obedient to another. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at the spread of Christianity, how it, it really does not spread from the powerful. Um, and it, it, it is, like you said, it's, it's, it's almost a religion of slaves, like right off the bat with all of the, the Roman Empire. Um, I, I've been looking into, I've been studying St. Patrick. I just really enjoy his story and reading about how, um, how many of his first church in Ireland, that's where it was. It was the slaves who were eventually, who were the first ones who kind of latched onto the hope of Christ. And then eventually it made its way up. Um, and so it's interesting that that seems to be just kind of a feature of Christianity in general, that it's hope for the hopeless. Uh, and then eventually it makes its way up to almost that kind of Pharisee level, I suppose you could say. But the people who are in power, the people who think they don't need anything, um, it takes a while for their hearts to be changed by it. But I think there's the, the hope that Jesus gives us makes a ton of sense for someone who is kind of at the at the lowest level of society. So yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful, uh, beautiful thing that God does even even in that portion. Absolutely. One distinction I want to make here is that without Christ. We don't just have a little bit of bad behavior. We are, and Paul, this is his point, we are marked, we are owned, we are enslaved to sin. And Romans 6 all the way through 8 traces this path to freedom from that terrible enslaved condition. And some call this a discussion of the new exodus that releases believers from slavery to sin. And I love that phrase, new exodus, because uh, we, we are... Most of us, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you are familiar with the Exodus story, you know, the, the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston. And it's such a vivid picture of, of people leaving slavery into freedom. And so uh, that is a great uh, word picture, the new Exodus here, that we are marked by God, uh, as God's people and we are under grace. And that phrase, under grace, is used only two times here in verse first, first I'm sorry, verse 14 and 15 in all of scripture. So it seems to be something that Paul maybe has, uh, it's not familiar to the people or he's made up maybe, I don't know, but under grace. And we have two choices. We are under law or we are under grace. You can't have it to be a little bit of both. It doesn't work that way. We cannot have, uh, we can either have the righteousness of Christ or I can have my own. I can't try for a little bit of mine and also claim Christ. I have chosen to come under Christ's righteousness and therefore, I don't need to work for my own anymore. And that is really hard as humans to grasp just that free gift again that, uh, that chapter 5 was talking about. And uh, as God's people, we're not just given rescue from sin and salvation as God's gift to us, but it's meant to be God's gift through us for all of humanity that we are to join God's rescue mission, 
that um, exodus from slavery. We're to, we're to join that in freeing other people from slavery to sin. Yeah, it's kind of like a, it's a picture of if you want to put it back to the Old Testament exodus. Uh, it's almost like if the Israelites on their way out kept grabbing other slaves and saying, come with us, we're leaving now. Like that's, like, that's kind of our calling as Christians. Is yes. It's not just the exodus for uh, us. Like you said, it's it's the exodus for everyone. So that's a great way of putting it. Uh, chapter seven, full disclosure, listeners. I had to read this one a couple times to try and figure out what Paul's argument here was like. Um, but I think, I think I've got a handle on it. Uh, in chapter seven, Paul argues that we died in Christ to receive our new covenant. And the way he argues this is that the law only has jurisdiction over someone as uh, while they live. So it's like marriage, right? Even today, when we make marriage vows, uh, they're not for eternity. They're for the rest of our lives is, is the language that we use. Um, so now that we have died along with Christ, we have been set free from the law. Uh, and this does not mean that the law is sin. As because it shows us our sin. Literally, Paul says, does this mean that the law is sinful? By no means. So he, he drops that in there. Uh, but what the function of the law is, is to show us sin. And Paul uses the example of he wouldn't have known it was wrong to covet if he didn't have that in the law. Um, so he maybe that's a sin that Paul struggled with ex- exceptionally. Um, but it, it's this idea that because the law shows us our sin, that means it's a wonderful thing. However, it's not the thing that is going to save us is the argument that he's making. Uh, and this is followed by a discussion that I think most of us can identify with. Um, Paul shows us how even as we live tethered to Christ, this does not mean that we are free from sin. Uh, and he ends it with these lines. Uh, this is Romans 7 verses 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Uh, and like I said, I think I think a lot of us can identify with knowing uh, knowing what's right and still struggling to do that because we again we we live in this state of um, we're saved, we're justified before God, but we're not perfect. We don't know what it's like to live without sin yet. We won't know that until we get to the other side of eternity. Uh, and so I, I love these moments of Paul where he kind of just lets you into even his own mind as he's writing these things and how he's. Uh, he struggles with this weird balance that balance is the wrong word. He struggles with this tension um, between these two things that he is serving. Uh, but again, he ends it with hope. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Or in other words, thank God, literally thank God for the salvation and the free gift of righteousness that comes through Jesus. This is a hard chapter, I think, to wrap your mind around a bit. And so I, this is going to be a terrible in one way analogy, but it kind of helped me come to what is what Paul is saying here. If I think about like when I, my kids were little and, you know, kids don't always get along. And so uh, there were times where maybe one would hit the other one. and so. Uh, you could make the argument like, well, there wasn't a rule about no hitting. And as soon as you make a rule, okay, guys, I've seen this play out. So there's a rule. You may not hit your brother. That having that rule, there's nothing wrong with that rule, but that rule is actually going to bring something out in that child that the minute it's a rule, you say, don't, what do they want to do? They want to do exactly that thing. That's a good point. Because it's human nature that that rises up. 
And it's not that the rule made him hit or or want to hit more in one way, and yet it kind of is, but it's not because the law itself, the rule itself wasn't good, but also that rule doesn't instantly make it so that there's peace in the home. It still is a heart issue that is deep inside and um, that has to be taken care of. It doesn't instantly bring peace, just like the law didn't actually solve any problems. We needed Jesus for that. So it's it's kind of a, in one way, dumb argument, and all analogies uh, end somewhere, don't, don't follow all the way out. But it kind of helped me wrap my head around that a little bit to think about two little kids and need, the need for rules. Rules are not wrong, but, but they don't take care of the issue. And sometimes it actually brings out the fact that, oh, well, now you broke a law, you broke a rule, you know, and the other child might become a little bit self-righteous in that too. So you kind of see the law play out a little bit that way in kids. Yeah. No, I think it's a great, I think it's a great example. Okay. So now Romans 8. Um, Romans 8, there is so much here that I don't even know how to be concise. I'm actually reading a book on the entire chapter of, I mean, the entire book is about the chapter uh, 8 in Romans. And so I'm having trouble narrowing it down. But I think it's a great example of why Paul's writing is so very loved by people, but also why people have so much trouble with Paul. Because in Romans 8, we have some of the heights of all of the statements in all of Scripture, I think. Uh, Verse 28 is, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Verse 31 is another famous one. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These are all well-known verses, well-loved verses. Even our opening statement in verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are quotable Paul quotes for sure. But in those first four, four verses, we also see why Paul is hard to read too, because it's a bit like a riddle that you have to untangle. And um, I don't know if you remember or if you ever did them, but in geometry, we used to do proofs. Evan, did you ever do a proof? I have. I've purposely kind of just blacked my mind out of all yeah. of my math classes. Good they choice. Were, they weren't good times. Good choice. Well, a proof was so weird because you would have something like A equals D, and then you'd have to prove why A equals D. Because A equals B and B equals C and C equals D, so therefore A equals D. And I feel like this verse here is a little bit like that. And depending on the version you use, we, pay, we have to pay attention to all of Paul's connecting words. And um, in some of the versions, he uses four, 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 four. Oh, all over again, you see all of the arguments play out. But it, you have to untangle it to find out what in the world is Paul saying. So actually, in uh, those first few verses, I would highly recommend reading it in a translation that's a thought-for-thought translation a little bit more like the New Living Translation, to kind of see, because uh, some of those fours will get changed to things like because. And so I think it becomes a little bit clearer what Paul is saying. Um, But verses 1 through 11 is an introduction that celebrates there is no condemnation because of Jesus' death and the Spirit's life-giving power to us. And then book ended on the other side in verses 31 through 39 is the conclusion which celebrates that there's no condemnation because nothing can separate us from God's love displayed in the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So there's two little bookends there that there is no condemnation with different reasons. And then we have the verses in the middle, uh, verse 12 through 30, which explains that the Spirit provides assurance of sonship and the inheritance with verse 17 acting, I think, like a record scratch of a left turn. 
um, it says this, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, God, in fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. What? <laughs> Yay, I've been adopted as God's child and I'm an heir to his glory. But then record scratch, I also have to share his suffering. I mean, we we see the suffering of Christ on the cross. We know what that suffering is. We don't want to share in the suffering. We just want to share in the glory. So it's like, what what happened here? And in the next 11 or so verses, Paul talks about his this suffering. And he uses this word groaning, um, the groaning of all creation against suffering, which you'll see will turn into a hopeful groaning toward everything being made right again. It's actually a really beautiful chapter, and I can't wait for you to read it this week. Yeah, there's a, I'm never going to be able to read verse 17 without thinking of a record scratch in my head. No, <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. That's a good way. That's of... what it made me think of, because I'm like, yay, everybody wants to share his glory. Oh, but through suffering? Wah, wah, wah. Exactly. Oh, man. Uh, the final two chapters of Romans that we're reading today, uh, they see Paul discussing the fate and the role of Israel, which I think is really interesting. Like, again, you have to put yourself into the mind of Paul, um, who grows up in Israel. He's a Jew. He's he's a Pharisee. And so obviously he has an intense heart uh, for, for his fellow uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, and you see this where he, I think sometimes we just skip over this verse. He he literally says he wishes that he could become accursed and be separated from Christ if that means all of his fellow Jews would be saved. Um, that's strong love. Yeah, that is not that's not a flippant thing that no. Paul is saying there. He, he's literally he's essentially saying I would I would rather go to hell if it meant that all of my Jewish brothers and sisters would be able to be in relationship with God in heaven instead. So Paul clearly feels incredibly strongly about this, um, and then he uses the Old Testament to show how the lineage of the Jews is not enough to save them. Uh, and so he points out that, you know, they're all descendants of Abraham. And you see that come up in the gospels, right? Where it says, we are sons of Abraham. Uh, but Paul points out that it's not all, not all the sons of Abraham are blessed or chosen by God. It's just the sons of Isaac. Uh, so it's just that one line. So obviously you have uh, Ishmael is the most famous. And I believe there's other sons that were born to um, Abraham's second wife after Sarah died, but all of those different things, right? It's it's only the sons of Isaac who become the nation of Israel. And when you go to the kids of Isaac, it's Jacob and Esau. Uh, the Edomites don't are not God's chosen people. Uh, it's just the Israelites. So those are the descendants of Jacob, not the descendants of Esau. Uh, and this is where it can, it can be really hard to read because essentially Paul's point is that God is going to choose who he's going to choose. And like he's just, like even it talks about how Jacob I loved and Esau I've hated. There's not really a reason given for that. It's just the fact that God made it that way. Uh why did God choose Isaac over Ishmael? Maybe there's a little bit more context there because obviously uh God promised Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a son, but again, God chooses the one son to show intense favor to and the other ones do not receive that same blessing. We always put the emphasis on the rejection of Esau or the Edomites or the one who's rejected, but really um it's that's not the marvel. The marvel is in the fact that the he uh, Jacob was equally as scandalous and that choice of Jacob was uh was a marvel, I think. Mm -hmm. And so we have to switch our minds. Even the same thing with Pharaoh that that we look at and we go, oh man, poor Pharaoh, God hardened his heart. Well, Pharaoh had already hardened his heart. And the real marvel is the mercy that God shown, uh, showed to him that he allowed him to live and continue to rule. And so I think we have to switch our mindset from, whoa, one was rejected. No, 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 no. They all 
didn't deserve to be uh, chosen, but yet one was given mercy. So that's the real marvel. No, that's a great point. Yeah, it's the the def- it's it's similar to the the test that we talked about. The, yes. the default for um, the woman would have been the test not doing anything. The default for humankind is being rejected by God, and the exception, the miracle, is God choosing people. So kind right of a, back a to His holiness again. Mm-hmm. You know that uh, that God is holy and He can't be less holy. That is just. And his holiness is just. And so all mercy is given, um, and it is all a marvel. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, and Paul kind of wraps up this chap- chapter 9 with the idea that um, he, he's quoting Isaiah, and it's a, it's a passage about a stumbling block being laid down for the people. And he's saying that the Jews right now are stumbling over this stumbling block, uh, who Jesus is, that their, their unbelief is becoming a, a major problem. And he continues on with that theme as he goes into our, our final chapter today, Romans 10. Uh, and he once again cites large passages of the Old Testament. First, he cites Deuteronomy, showing that the word has been near the people uh, and how that reality points to the word of Christ. Or in other words, just like back then God was saying this today, the word is right there. The truth is right there and you're not grabbing a hold of it. Uh, and then furthermore, he shows how Joel, the prophet Joel, uh, points towards the reality that God's salvation will not always be exclusive to the Jews, uh, but the Gentiles will eventually have access as well. So he taught in, in Joel, he talks about how uh, it's going to be for all nations. Uh, and this is that moment. This is the all nations moment. We're in that era of salvation. And then Paul wraps up with some more examples of how this truth is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Um, I love that you brought up the idea earlier of reading different Bible translations in different parts because it's going to help you get a full picture of what the original was saying. Um, and so you talked about reading uh, a, a thought for thought translation to, to kind of help bring it into a more readable English for us today. Uh, this year has been my first one reading the, uh, it's called the New American Standard Bible. It's the NASB. Um, and that's kind of on the opposite side of the NLT. It's it's super literal, um, full disclosure. It's 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 pretty it's pretty difficult to read. I've been enjoying it, but it's definitely not like a, I have to go back over and reread things a couple times once in a while because it's not making sense. But one of the things that I love that the translation does, and I'm kind of annoyed that no other translation does it, is in the New Testament, whenever the author is quoting the Old Testament, they put it in all caps. Um, so it immediately jumps off the page to you. That is really helpful. It's, it's amazing. And I'm like, I, I keep reading it. And I'm like, why on earth do, do, not, do other translations not clearly mark these things? Um, and so for this passage in particular, it was really helpful to read in the NASB because you see Paul making all of the connection points to the Old Testament that you're not going to get unless you're always glancing over at the, um, not the footnotes, the... Um, the side margin. Yeah, I don't know what it's mar- called. What are the oh, I can't think of it. I don't need to spend a lot of time. Cross reference. It. There you go. I was it was gonna it was gonna bug me if I didn't think about it. Uh and so these are this is the last New Testament passage today, but this is Romans 10, 18 through 21 in the NASB. Uh it says, But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? On the contrary, and then now he starts quoting. The voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And then Paul goes back to speaking. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? For Moses says, and now he's quoting again, I will make you jealous with all of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will anger you. Paul goes back. He says, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. And then the last verse is, but as for Israel, he says, and this is his final quote, I have spread out my hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. And so Paul's argument is that the Jews have received truth 
They've been rejecting it. They've been stubborn. And even in the old covenant, God was telling them that there was going to come a time when his salvation was open to the entire world, not just to the nation of Israel. So in case the the Jewish believers or um, the Jewish non-believers who are reading the Paul's letter to the Romans, if they're struggling with it, he's purposely using passages out of the Old Testament right away. And sometimes he straight up says he's quoting, and other times he just writes it. And so that's where it was really helpful for me to be able to read uh, in a translation where it, it just jumps out off the page right there. Uh, but that wraps it up for our New Testament readings this week. So Romans, that was the that was the bulk one. Next week, we're going to finish it out with uh, getting all the way through the book. But uh, a wonderful book. Obviously, like we said, it's a little bit more difficult to read, um, but in the best way. There's just so much truth that's packed in there that it's it's worth every second of having to go back over and reread a couple sentences to really get the idea of what God is communicating to us through Paul. Uh, but now let's talk about some Psalms and Proverbs passages. All right, well, this week we did two psalms in a proverb. Uh, So Psalm 25 is a psalm of David asking for protection, guidance, and pardon from God. Um, All those things are going to come up a ton with the psalms of David. That's kind of the major thing that he's writing about. Uh, But it's telling that this psalm, and sorry, in this psalm, the physical salvation from his enemies is connected with the idea of Yahweh forgiving David of his sin. Uh, and so those those two things are not separate ideas to David. He's asking for deliverance from his enemies and forgiveness of his sin. So I think it's it's um it's showing how those things are going to be connected one day in Christ as well. Uh, and this is finally expressed. In the last line, uh, which asks for the forgiveness and redemption of Israel from all of their distress. So it begins as a personal ask of forgiveness and salvation for David, and the ending portion is forgiveness and salvation for the nation of Israel as a whole as well. So cool. You can see kind of where David's mind is at there. Uh, Proverbs 5 continues on with Solomon reminding the reader of the importance of wisdom. So this is kind of the big prologue of Proverbs before you get to the more famous part where it's just like one liner after one liner. Uh, This chapter particularly deals with the wisdom of avoiding adultery. Uh, Solomon is really clear that engaging in that behavior will lead to death. Uh, And the last line reminds the reader that they will fall away due to their great foolishness. Or in other words, entertaining these things is going to is 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 foolishness and is going to lead its way to death. This uh, chapter has real Song of Solomon vibes. I think this is like the the prereq or pre-work for his entire book later on, I think. He's like, you think, yeah, later on in his life, he's like, you know what? Let's go back. Expound on that. Let's go back to that Proverbs 5 chapter. Uh, And then finally, Psalm 26 is our final Psalm for this week. And it's yet another cry from David for deliverance and redemption of God. It's a little, it's a lot shorter. But you'll notice it explores a lot of the same themes as Psalm 25. So a little bit simpler this week, but there you go. Those are the Psalms and Proverbs. All right, well, let's go ahead and talk about what we learned today. I want to return back to Romans 8, 17 and that record scratch of the idea of if we're to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. And I want to couple that with uh, chapter 5 in verse 2 through 5, which said, We boast in the hope of glory of God, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope, which it just said was produced out of affliction that gets endured, will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through His Holy Spirit who is given to us. Enduring 
affliction produces in us character and hope. And I think we cannot separate that direct correlation between enduring suffering and a deepening of our Christ-like character and our hope that goes deep into Jesus. Without suffering, we are in peril of being shallow, judgmental, uh, non-compassionate people who are not able to stand firm in our hope and faith in Jesus. It's just true. I've watched it play out in my own life. I've watched it play out um, observationally, and then we see it here in Scripture, too. And that is why I think James says we can consider it pure joy whenever, not if, but whenever we face trials of many kinds. So um, I just want to encourage everyone, if you're enduring some suffering today, that I would encourage you to allow God to pour his love into your heartache and know that God will use it to produce his character in you and that you have the hope of glory ahead of you. That's a great that's a great reminder. Uh my application is also from Romans because I think it's it's impossible to read Romans and not have like the applications immediately mm-hmm. come to you. Uh but it's it's the simple verse of when when Paul says that the byproduct of this justification through faith is that we have peace with God. Um do we actually live like that's true? Because I think I think so often we default to kind of the pagan mindset that and it's funny my application is kind of connected to yours. Um, that everything bad that happens to us, it must be God punishing me for something, or it, it must be um, that I've done something to bring this suffering upon myself. And sometimes our suffering is a consequence of, of our stupid actions. Um, but a lot of the times, it's just the byproduct of living in a broken and sinful world. Um, the, the, the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. Um, Paul talks about that when he talks about the groanings of the world um, to, to, toward the new heaven and the new earth. There's this idea of a way things are supposed to be, they're not there yet, and, and, we're, and we're looking forward to that. And I think one of the ways that we can fail in that is we don't remember to ourselves that we have peace with God, um, that when we walk through difficult times, that when we walk through areas of our life that are just that just weigh on us really heavily, it's not that God is punishing us. We're not experiencing the condemnation of the Holy Spirit, um, but rather God is with us in those moments. It's kind of the, the fulfillment of a psalm we talked about last week, Psalm 23. Um, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, we know that God is still with us. And so I think for us today, if 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 you're struggling with that idea of kind of just thinking every painful thing that happens in life must be a punishment from God, um, I would encourage you to really reflect on the truth that because we are saved, that means that we have peace with God. All right. Well, our last section or segment today, we did have a question come in. So we're going to take a moment to answer that. All right. So it says, I just finished season five. Congratulations. Thanks for listening. Uh, What is your explanation for why Jesus's followers didn't recognize him after the resurrection? Uh, Okay. So this is, I love speculative, speculative questions where you just kind of have to think about it for a moment. Uh, Cause yeah, as a kid, I was, I remember reading and it's like, is it like a Clark Kent thing where he just like puts on the glasses and all of a sudden no one recognizes who Jesus is. Uh, So I think there's a couple things going on. Uh, Number one, we know that Jesus is in a more glorified state following his resurrection. Uh, And so we don't know exactly what that changes, but I think it's, it's fairly obvious that the disciples don't recognize Jesus right off of the bat because he's changed so much. Um, and it reminds me of, it's it's the opposite, but it reminds me of Job a little bit where his friends go to Job to comfort him and they don't recognize him because he has sores all over his body. 
and because he's 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 thinner he he hasn't been eating uh he's under such distress that it takes them a moment to recognize that this is their friend job i think it's like the opposite with jesus where he's so glorified um he's he's in such a different state that it takes the disciples a second to recognize oh that's jesus that's who i've been walking with um and then also in some cases he's jesus is just uh he's doing it on purpose so like the road to emmaus it seems like he is purposely disguising himself and he can do that he's god he's allowed to do miracles uh so in that one he's literally just having a long walk in conversation with some of his disciples and he just purposely keeps them from knowing that that's who he is so uh sometimes i think it's miraculous and jesus is doing it on purpose sometimes i think it's just the nature of him being glorified in that moment um, Heather, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add. To that uh, I, w- I was thinking a little more practically, just the fact oh. of like, he's dead. Why would he be there? So they just are not expecting him to be there. So um, I don't know if that would completely make it, him unrecognizable, but they are not expecting to find him either. You know, it's funny. Yeah, I, put, <laughs> I thought about this for a while. I never, it never occurred to me like, yeah, you wouldn't be expecting to see your friend that just died walking up to you. It's a great point. That's another that's another one to chalk up to. <laughs> but when uh, you're th- talking about glorification, it makes me actually really excited for someday maybe that's what we get to experience, you know, in eternity when we are with God forever that our, our own state whatever it is, we mm-hmm. don't have a whole lot of information about that will be so beautiful and new that it's unrecognizable. Yeah, I think we all if you've lived long enough, we all have friends and family members that we're excited to be reunited with one day in heaven. Um, and it is fun to think about, yeah, maybe we're not going to recognize them for a few seconds. Maybe it's going to take us a moment to realize like, oh, that's, you know, that's so-and-so. So that's a really, that's a cool, really cool way of thinking of it. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can go on our website, grove.church, and find our other resources under the media tab. Uh, And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.